Let's read God's word together from Romans 1. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For, it is, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honour him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and in their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Now to Romans chapter 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual or rational worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, and what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as one body, we have so many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortion, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor, do not be slothful in zeal, be further in spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for this wonderful letter to the Roman church that has done so many people good since including this church family. And we pray now that you would help us by your spirit to hear your voice, to trust your voice, and most of all, to be transformed by your voice. And please help me not to get in the way of that. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you're relatively new to Chalmers, um, or you've just come back to church in the building, uh, you've come at a great time. 
because we are just embarking on uh, the kind of final block of Romans, Romans 12 to 16. This is going to kind of run through to uh, the early summer. And it's just brilliantly practical. You will have noticed that from, from uh, the reading we've just had, the second reading. It's practical. It shows us how to live, how to relate to each other. If you're not a Christian and you're, you're kind of looking in, this is how Christians should behave, how churches should operate. It's very practical. It's going to tell us why we pay taxes as Christians, why we follow coronavirus regulations, even if we don't like them, why we put up with different opinions sometimes on ch- in church on, on matters that aren't central to the gospel, how we can fight for, for sexual purity, how we can relate to people persecuting us. Striking, having just prayed for that this morning why we show hospitality to one another, and many, many more things. It's really practical, this section of the book. Although, interestingly, it all comes under the heading of worship. If you were here last week or tuned in last week, uh, 12, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, we actually looked at verse 1 in the morning, verse 2 in the evening. It's well worth going back and listening to both sermons. I recommend them. I did that this week, having been away. Um, well, not actually away, but, you know, on holiday um, at home. Uh, and strikingly, all that stuff about how we relate to others, how we relate as church, how we relate to society, how we relate to enemies, how we relate to everyone out there, is headed by the title worship. This is actually how we worship God. And so you can see on the outline uh, for this morning, my kind of opening question was, what does great worship look like? What does great worship look like, feel like, sound like? I think many Christians asked that question out, out of the context of Romans 12, might have thought in their minds kind of corporate gatherings and singing, music. That's what great worship looks like. And if that's what great worship is, well, we haven't had any for a year now. But God doesn't actually think that's what great worship looks like. It's, it's part of worship, but it's a small slice. Romans 12 verse 1 says the worship that God is looking for is not restricted to our vocal cords for a couple of hours a week. Rather, it's offering our whole bodies as living sacrifices, that is 24-7, whole life worship. All the time, all we are lived for his glory. And this morning, we're starting to unpack what that's going to involve. So I guess as Christians, we might need this passage. What about the world around us? What, what might the world say great worship looks like? As lots of people don't care about the question, but, but if they do, I think our increasingly polytheistic culture would say great worship is the worship that you choose. Sincerity is the mark of, of worship. Kind of the important thing is that you're true to yourself, that you worship as you think is right. No one can tell you what to believe. Each person has their own truth. We all worship our own God, our own way, and that's just great. I'm sure God's big enough to cope with people calling him different names. But again, the Bible just does not agree with that. In fact, that's why we read Romans 1, because Romans 1 says God is not happy with how the world is worshipping, how humanity is approaching him. Because actually they're not worshipping him as he truly is, but, but suppressing the truth about him to turn to gods of our own making, to worship things he's created, to worship gods we've created. In fact, that is humanity's greatest problem, bigger than disease, bigger than death, bigger than moral chaos. The root problem is wrong worship. That was chapter one. That's where the whole letter started. 
and God's indignation at that wrong worship, the creator not being worshipped and honoured and thanked by his creatures. And so that makes Romans 12 to 16 a big deal theologically. It's not just, okay, let's just talk about the application for a few weeks. No, this is let's put worship right again. Let's turn things that are so upside down in the world, let's turn them right way up. Let's see what life is like with God at the center rather than myself, living for God. And that will mean living for love, living outwards to other people. Great worship is doing everything God says in life, which will mean a life of love for him and others. So that's going to be unpacked over the next uh, number of weeks, but, but we're going to dive in this morning, and you'll see we've got kind of four areas today in verses 3 to 13, four areas to think about uh, what worship looks like. The first one's the kind of big ones. We'll spend a bit longer there. That underpins everything else. Um, so here's the first area we need to grow in worship, uh, having a right view of myself. That's the first thing, verse 3, the very first thing he turns to, have a right view of myself sobered by God's mercy. I have chosen myself, singular, deliberately. Uh, Romans 12 begins, strikingly, with the individual. It's really interesting that, because the rest of the, the, the whole chunk is going to be corporate. It's going to be about us as a church family, how we relate to other people, us as a group. But, but strikingly, the very first step is a right view of myself. In fact, none of the relating rightly to others is possible if I don't first have a right view of myself. So this is a morning to try and avoid the temptation of wondering what someone else is making of this. You ever done that? I think it happens quite a lot, actually, when we're listening to a sermon. We think, oh, I really hope so-and-so is listening to this. I really hope they've tuned in this morning. This is something they really need. No, this is something for each of us to reflect on before God ourselves. And here it is, verse 3. Paul says, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself or herself more highly than they ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. It's a clear command, isn't it? Don't think too highly of myself. Think with sober judgment. That is, just be realistic, be clear-headed, be accurate in your self-assessment. Don't get carried away thinking I'm amazing and God's lucky to have me in his church. No, sober up, think no highly than we ought to. So here's the question. According to Romans, how highly ought we to think of ourselves? In a lot of circles today, genuine humility is not a virtue that's prized. Often we're encouraged to have more self-confidence, to accept ourselves, to have more self-belief. What does Romans say? What does the gospel say? How ought we to think of ourselves before God? Well, there's two parts to it, and we need to hear both. And depending on your temperament, you'll need to hear one or the other more loudly. Two parts to it. Firstly, remember how chapter 12, verse 1 started. Therefore, in view of God's mercies. That word mercy begins to give us a clue that actually we, we weren't all good. <laughs> we needed God to show us mercy. That is to say, we didn't join the church through some talent-spotting recruitment drive. We weren't kind of headhunted out of the great mass of humanity because we're the high achievers. We're, we're the ones who can really uh, show potential in God's people. We're the natural friends of God. No, where chapter 11 left us was 
everyone enters through the door marked mercy. Whether Jew or non-Jew, we only have a place in God's people by his sovereign kindness, his mercy to people who do not deserve it. I know for folks looking into Christian things, that can be a bit of a sticking point. I mean, undeserving, really? Am I really that bad? Yes, says God. Romans makes it clear, we're all made to worship God, our creator, and none of us do, not properly. We don't honor him. We don't give him the thanks he's due. Some of us do that through kind of wild moral abandon. Others do it through self-righteous religious hypocrisy. (laughs) But whichever route, we all push God aside, choose our own version of God to worship. So that's the first side of, of kind of mercy. We are all guilty. We're all enemies of God, naturally. That's the message of Romans. And so sober judgment says, that is what I'm like, naturally. But actually, sober judgment also says, but look at God, how God loves me. It's even there in verse 3. Think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. See, even my faith is a gift from God. God has assigned it. It's not, that's not the bit we do. Yes, we do it, but God has given us faith. Actually, no one in Adam would choose to trust God were it not for God's kindness to give us faith. God is so merciful, so kind. He didn't just leave us in our sin, in our predicament, facing his judgment. He came and got us. He loved us. And this is the extraordinary thing about kind of Christian self-esteem. Simultaneously, I say, I deserve nothing, and yet I am so loved. I am so secure. Christianity explored the course that helps people investigate one of the gospel accounts of Jesus, puts it like this, we are more wicked than we ever realized and more loved than we ever dreamed. That's exactly right. If we've been taking Romans 1 to 11 on board, that's exactly right. More wicked than I dare to admit to anyone else, to God, certainly to myself, and yet more loved than I could ever dream. That is a sober assessment of ourselves. And it's a wonderful thing, actually, to know that the most important person in the universe knows me and still loves me. Knows me all the way through. Knows me in a way that no one else does, that I wouldn't let anyone else know me, and yet loves me enough to save me at cost to himself. It's absolutely extraordinary. And it should be a great leveler in community. And this this gets us on to, to where we're going for the rest of the passage. You see, this gospel should level us, because it doesn't actually matter in church whether you're clever or not, or how gifted or not you are, or how educated or not you are, or how rich or not you are, or how fun you are, or how sporty you are, or how well-connected you are, how powerful you are, how famous you are, how funny you are, how white you are, how middle-class you are, how Scottish you are, or any other nationality, how sophisticated you are, how healthy you are, how able and young you are, how able and old you are, it doesn't matter. What matters is we're sinners saved by grace. People who God has given faith to. People who God has united in Jesus. 
We all came through the door marked mercy. And I know if you've been around for Romans, you've heard that before. But I honestly think we can't hear this enough. That's my experience. We've got the world around us chipping away, telling us we're great and we must put ourselves first. We've got our own flesh trying to tell us to to compare ourselves to others, to find our place in the pecking order and maybe notch up a couple of rungs by pushing someone else down. And Paul says no. Verse 3, notice the authority he cites. It's really striking. He doesn't say by my authority as an apostle or by my special position. Verse 3, he says, by the grace given to me. I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. We're just fellow recipients of kindness, God's undeserved kindness. And so Paul wants us to join him in putting pride to death, a sober self-assessment. That's our first point. And to be honest, if we struggle with any of the remaining points, it's probably because we haven't yet got this one working in our hearts. Lots of ways, I think this is the thing we need to, to free us up for serving others, for, for, for serving with our gifts, for loving people genuinely. That's why we spent time there. Um, it's actually why I let the reading on, that's printed on the sheet run on to verse 16. Did you notice that? Um, verse 16 which is next week's passage, it will be another area to think about. But verse 16 reminds us, do not be haughty, associate with the lowly, never be wise in your own sight. This truth of verse 3 underpins all of the application to come, all of chapters 12 to 16. So whether you're a new Christian or have been a Christian for ages, whether you're sometimes tempted to look on um, on your kind of record of serving and think, well, at least now I've contributed something, no, sober up. It's a big moment for me in my Christian life when I realized that even my good works needed covering by the blood of Jesus. Even they needed forgiveness. Not least because of the pride I took in them. That's point one. Growing a right view of ourselves, myself. But on to part two, point two. Um, uh, true worship will involve a right view of church. I've said already the gospel is the great leveler. And God's power in the gospel is able to create community. It's an amazing thing, the gospel. It does all sorts of things, (laughs) all sorts of power of God for salvation. And one of the ways is it it makes us into a community, an amazing intergenerational, international, interracial, interclass, interdependent family, the church. Actually, to call it a family is weaker than what Paul says here. Did you notice that? Paul's language is body. The church is one body with many parts. We're many parts, but one body in Christ. We're a single organism. We're so fundamentally united. I do think this is not a natural thought for us in the West. So much of our culture is individualistic. I think this is an area where we need to not be conformed to the world around us, but be transformed by God's gospel to have our thinking changed by his mercies. Think how chapter 11 put it, and do go back and listen to chapter 11 if you haven't had a chance um, over Easter. Chapter 11 said, we're all grafted into one tree, whether Jewish, kind of natural branches, or wild, that's most of us, non-Jewish branches, we've all been grafted into one tree of God's people. 
Or chapter 6 put it like this, we've all died to ourselves and been united with Jesus. We're now kind of bound to him, and because we're bound to him, we're bound to one another. We'll be thinking about that later as we uh, share the Lord's Supper together. We are united in one body, the death of Jesus. It's a radical way to see our identity. And I can't think of a better moment in this crazy last year, a better moment to be reminded of this. I just think it's so kind of the, the living Lord God to, in his providence to have us in this chapter at this moment of, of the unlocking process. I was actually talking this week to someone from a different church and they were worried. They were, they were worried about whether their church would, would be able to get back into the habits of hospitality, of connecting with one another. He felt like maybe the habits of isolated living had just become established because it's been such a long time. I mean, it's a good point. Because the reality is we do belong to each other. I don't know if you ever... You know when we welcome members to to services, kind of formally welcome them uh, in a service to the church family, uh, we ask a load of questions. I don't know if you ever sat there and thought, well, steady on, like... These are quite big questions. Like, this is quite a high level of commitment we're talking about here. We ask about coming regularly, about serving with gifts and time and money and energy. Well, it's not just joining a golf club or a gym, certainly not just tuning in to a particular channel on YouTube. But a real level of commitment is exactly what the Bible expects from local church. It just thinks of it as normal. We might think of it as strange from our individualistic backgrounds. We don't think corporately, but look at verse 5. We, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. It it would be as absurd of thinking I can do the Christian life alone as it would as my leg deciding that it can just do its own thing without reference to the rest of my body and without really contributing to what the rest of my body is doing. That did actually happen to me once. I was trying to remember if I've told this story. Sorry if I haven't, you've heard it. Um, Have you ever had that feeling? You know when you sleep on your arm in such a way, maybe a nap, and and your arm goes completely dead, like it's pins and needles, but to the nth degree, and you kind of, it's just floppy. You have to kind of drag it around. Have you ever had, I'm not getting any nods in the building. Maybe people at home are nodding. You get kind of completely dead arm, floppy arm. Can't do anything with it. I once had that experience, but with both legs. I am... it was, as a student, I was trying to make friends, and someone said, oh, come, come and um, try out rowing. Terrible idea for all sorts of reasons. So 6 a.m., I'm cycling through the dark to a cold river, and I get, I get kind of plugged into this boat, which doesn't really fit. Like, they haven't adjusted it, because we're just new people, and um, maybe it's a, a, a kind of um, strength test. Who knows? But um, it's really uncomfortable. And by the time I got out of the boat, I actually had to crawl out, because my legs had stopped working. They were just numb from the waist down. Uh, and I tried to stand up, obviously, kind of big um, guys, and, and I wanted to impress them, and I couldn't actually stand. Like, I just, <laughs> I just flopped back over. So I ended up having to pretend to tie my shoelaces for about six or seven minutes uh, while, while the blood slowly got back into the, into the legs. And Romans 12 says, do not be a limb like that. Don't be like my legs, having been strapped into an uncomfortable rowing boat. Don't just give up on the rest of the body or or operate like you're not connected. Again, it's a brilliant moment in the year to hear this, isn't it? When so many of us have been forced to live quite isolated lives over the last 12 months. Yes, we've had opportunities to chat. We've still engaged in small groups. We've been greatly blessed by Zoom, even though it's tiring. 
But nevertheless, we have had to bunker down a bit. We've had to kind of silo off. And I hope we realize how unnatural that is. Some of us will be, will be feeling that acutely. Some of us just can't wait to get back and see each other and have people in the, the home and meet for cups of tea and, and have people around for meals and stuff. But others, us of, others of us may be thinking, well, this is actually moderately comfortable. It's not as costly. But, as we'll see in communion in a moment, we are united in the death of Jesus. And so we should miss each other. We should miss being able to be together, miss being able to serve each other. That's point two. A right view of church means many parts but one body in Christ. And it brings us straight into point three, this right view of gifts, a right view of gifts, um, which is to say our differences are to be used for the body. Just look at it in verse five. Having gifts, sorry, verse 6, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. Just listen to that again, because in one sense, that is kind of stating the obvious, isn't it? Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. I mean, there's a reminder again of grace. Our differences are grace given. But, but why does he have to tell us to use them? And then he spells it out. Did you notice? Verse 7, if service, verse 6, sorry, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. If you've got this gift, get on and use it. If you've got this gift, get on and use it. If you've got this gift, get on and use it. It's kind of stating the obvious, isn't it? And why does a church need to be told to get on and use their gifts to serve the body? Why do we need all those illustrations of different kinds of gifts and using them? Couldn't he have saved some ink? Well, I've got um, 11 reasons, and 10 if we run out of time, but 11 reasons why we need to be told this. Don't worry, they're all brief, don't panic. Um, but I think actually we really need to be told this. So, so if you're taking notes, um, hopefully you can try and get all 11 uh, if you're listening in, please just uh, concentrate for the next few minutes. I'll go quickly. Number one, the whole church needs to be told to use our gifts because many Christians don't believe they have any gifts. Or at least gifts, don't believe they have gifts that would help the church. But that is not a sober assessment of yourself. It's not what the Bible says. It's a lie. It's not what God thinks. Romans 12 says, you're part of the body with gifts to contribute. That's number one. Number two, we need to use our different gifts, be told to use our different gifts, because many Christians spend their time wishing they had other gifts. Looking across at someone else and thinking, I wish I had their gifts, or gifts to their degree, stronger gifts, rather than working out what gifts I do have and just using them. Sometimes this isn't helped by a church culture. Sometimes it can feel like kind of only the really obvious gifts are valued. Maybe the, the people who are standing up here preaching or the musicians or something. Yeah, if I could do that, then I could be useful. But Paul says gifts differ. So we need to get on and use what we're good at, what we're strong in. And there's no doubt in Chalmers, we, we do have a focus on training people for church leadership. That means we are um, investing in a whole range of people for Bible teaching ministry. But that does not mean that we only need those kind of gifts. Of course not. 
They're helpful for serving the wider church, but actually this local church only exists in terms of function because of many, many, many gifts. We're only sitting on chairs, clean chairs, because of the use of many gifts. We're only booked in um, and, and kind of COVID safe and government um, compliant because of many, many gifts being used. It's the only reason we can run four services at which God's word is preached. And actually, if you look through the list, some of the examples are kind of word-based, prophecy, teaching. Others are practical, serving, giving, acts of mercy, meeting needs. There are lots of different gifts. So don't waste our time and energy wishing we had a different one, rather than thanking God for what he's made us to be, the gifts he's given us. Okay, number three. Many Christians are falsely modest and never use gifts to their potential. False modesty is nonsense. It's not Christian. It's actually gospel denying. Because I only pretend to be modest about a strength because I think it's to my credit. But actually everything we have is a gift from the creator. It's to his credit if I'm particularly strong at something. So I don't need to pretend. That's just something our world does. And it's fake anyway. So let's stop pretending we're not good at things when we are good at them and use them for the sake of the body. That's how we honor God with our abilities. Number four, many churches rely on a few people to do everything, which is not the picture of a body with many limbs. That can be be because those in the center don't let go. It can be because those on the edge don't step up. Happens both ways. I'm pleased to say increasingly, this is just not true of Chalmers. We're making real progress, I think, in countless people serving in lots of different ways. But it is something to watch out for in any local church. We mustn't bottleneck our growth or our witness or our ability to serve as a church family by, by too few people having to carry too much responsibility. When God has gifted the body with loads of people and loads of different gifts. It's one of the reasons we're committed to plural eldership here as a church family. It's one of the reasons we're committed to developing deacons who can take on particular areas of practical, practical responsibility so that as elders, we're not trying to do every single thing hands-on. That was number four. Number five, and this is related to the, the previous point. Sometimes as Christians, we feel we ought to be good and gifted at every single thing. As if kind of to be servant-hearted, I should always volunteer for every kind of job whether or not I'm I'm kind of able to do it or not. Witness the small group leader who feels like it's entirely down to them to do everything. The the social hospitality, the welcoming of new people, the diary planning and the organization of when the group meets, all the Bible study prep and study writing, all the personal care, the pastoral care, all the prayer for other individuals. Now, one or two of those things are really important that the small group leader takes a lead in. The ministry of the word is crucial. That's why we we look for the gift to teach in those who lead small groups and pastoral pastoral care. But actually lots of things can be shared in the group. Use the gifts we have in our church body. And let me tell you, it is such a relief and joy. It was to me when I realized in my Christian life that, that I'm just not very good at some things And that's okay. The sheer joy, actually, of other people being good at them, God making people who are really good at things that I'm really bad at, the joy of interdependent, different limbs pulling together in concert to achieve great things. It's actually a wonderful design. It's a wonderful thing. 
Number six, we need this reminder to use our different gifts in church because some of us give our best to work and leisure and ourselves and family and have nothing left over for church. Now, don't get me wrong, all of those other areas are ways in which we worship the Lord. Remember, it's 24-7 worship. It's not just what we do at the weekend or on Sunday or in church buildings. It's all of life. And God wants us to honor our family and be diligent workers and things. But nevertheless, the, the, the Bible doesn't recognize a kind of passenger Christianity where we just turn up to church to, to be fed rather than to crew the ship. And it may be, uh, for one or two of us, we may need to kind of take stock of that as, as we kind of rework life priorities as lockdown begins to um, ease. Number seven, we need this reminder to use our gifts because we can get weary. I wonder how many of us listening in today are feeling weary. I mean, we can be thankful. So many people have served so sacrificially over this last year in Chalmers. Countless different ways, some seen, some unseen. And for almost every role, it's got more difficult and less fun over the last year. And it's easy to grow weary now, there are ways we can help each other with that. I think it, it may be that some need to step up where others have been serving and give them a bit of a breather. Um, it, we need to kind of grow our teams as we grow the ministries that we're able to run as, as a church family. Um, but some of us who, who, who have been serving just, just need a reminder of how good the gospel is and so how worth it is, worth it, it is to keep using our gifts for the sake of the body. To just take that weariness and take Romans 1 to 11 and put them back together. In view of God's mercies, therefore, offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. And it may be best, if you're feeling really weary, it may be best to chat with a friend or a small group leader about whether what's wisest for you. Is it good to have a little breather, just recover a bit physically, mentally, emotionally? Or is it right to, to press on and apply the gospel afresh to your heart? It will vary by person. Number eight. We need to be reminded about these, everyone having different gifts because it, it, it's a corporate effort, I think, to discern what gifts different people have and how they match the needs of a church family. See, when it comes to sober judgment of ourselves, we're not always the best judge of what our gifts are and we're not always aware of what the particular needs in church are. It's important we don't, we don't make um, kind of my gift it has to be used regardless, regardless of what the needs are. Kind of, this is my gift, and I must, I must exercise it. Because um, actually, lots of us have multiple gifts, and it varies in particular times and particular church families what would be most helpful for the body. Uh, but often, we need help to discern that. A chat with a friend or a small group leader. I hope it's one of the conversations that might happen in, in Zoom groups or afterwards or, or walks this week or over the, the um, t- table with, with folks you live with. Kind of, how could I serve? What, what do you say my gifts are? What, how could I be useful to this particular church family? Number nine, sometimes uh, we need to be told that we've got to get on and use our gifts because we can assume that there is no need. Certainly in a medium church, medium-sized church where things are kind of running, seem to be running well, you can kind of think, well, it looks like everything's covered. If you're new to Chalmers, maybe you kind of look at it and think, well, I could be really useful in a tiny church, but this church seems to have everything covered, so, so not much place to serve here. Let me just say, that is so far from the truth. We would love more hands on deck. 
especially when you think what we're to do in the world as a church. Romans is going to go on to this, but remember, global witness is what we're about. Sharing the good news to the nations, that is a massive task and needs all hands on deck, um, as well as kind of witnessing to our community. So, so um, don't assume that it kind of gifts aren't needed. Um, for number 10, and we are short on time, so we might not get number 11, but number 10, Paul wants, us to, wants to remind us to, to use our gifts because he doesn't want grudging service. He doesn't want kind of bare minimum ticker box, if someone strong arms me and really kind of pushes me into doing something, I'll do it. No, he wants a kind of willing, heart and soul, throw yourself into it kind of service. It's really striking. Just look at the last three examples in the list. Um, have a look back at the passage. The last three examples... Most of the, most of the um, gifts he, he quotes, he, he just says, if this, get on and do it. Does that make sense? If teaching, teach. If serving, serve. But just look, look at the last three, because something different starts to happen. The one who contributes in generosity. The one who leads with zeal. The one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. And we're going to go on to more of this in our final point. But, but Paul wants there to be a kind of exuberance, a kind of heart and soul. Throw yourself into it. If you've got means, financial means, don't just kind of contribute. Don't just do your part. Be generous. If you're in a leadership role, don't just kind of tick the box and do the business. Don't just plod on. Lead with zeal. And if it's died a bit over the last few months, pray for the Lord to, to renew your zeal. Zeal for his glory. Zeal for the growth of people. Zeal for the lost. And the final one, if you do an act of mercy, again, not grudgingly, but with cheerfulness, put your heart into it, your smile into it, rediscover the joy of worshipping God in these mundane acts of kindness. Or as verse 9 puts it, and here we move on to our final point, let love be genuine. In many ways, that's another kind of massive headline in the section, let love be genuine. Right worship of God leads to genuine love. Verses 19 to 13 begin to unpack that for us. I struggled for a title to capture it. Uh, you can probably tell that from my, from my fourth point if you've got it in front of you. Um, so I've called it Genuine Multidimensional Enthusiasm, which sounds a bit like something Doctor Who would say, uh, your, or your preferred sci-fi. It's not about kind of multi-universes. It's about this universe with its multiple circumstances. Multidimensional enthusiasm is a way of saying genuine love across the board, 24-7, every situation, every kind of person. Love gets involved with people, whatever they're going through. So easy when people are suffering just to kind of edge backwards a bit. I don't know what to say. I don't want to mess it up. I, oh, I feel awkward. Love gets involved, just gets involved. Multidimensional enthusiasm. Let's just briefly look at the through the examples as we draw to a close. So verse 9, um, love doesn't put up with everything. No, abhor what's evil and hold fast to good. Love is discerning. Love loves truth, hates lies. Love, love loves God, hates idolatry. Verse 10, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. I love that verse. It's hard, isn't it, typically to take pleasure in someone else being honoured, so easy to be competitive, uh, but the com competition in a church family should be to honour others. 
that we're kind of trying to outdo each other in honoring others. What does that mean in practice? Well, well, um, it might well mean wanting someone else to have my place in church, someone else to use the building, if, even if it means that we're going to be on Zoom. Um, it might mean uh, kind of shifting to fit with someone else's preferences. Over the coming months, we're all going to have slightly different opinions about how fast things should open, about what we should do with opportunities we have. Uh, when we come to uh, the renovation project and moving out the building, there'll be all sorts of differences of views, all sorts of disruption, all sorts of ways in which things don't quite work as well as they used to for me in my kind of slice of church life. Well, outdo one another in showing honor to others. Love one another with brotherly affection. I think sometimes it's good to just do a conversation audit and think, how am I talking about my brothers and sisters at church? Not to them, but behind closed doors, behind backs. This would be a good moment to do that if you haven't for a while. Verse 11. Again, multi-dimensional enthusiasm. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. It's a good question to ask. Have I drifted into sloth? I mean, lots of us, I think, our our minds are not as sharp, our bodies are not as sharp post-lockdown as they used to. The question is, is our spiritual zeal not as sharp? If so, then let's go back to verses 1 to 3. Remember the gospel, have a right view of myself. And so verse 12, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Genuine love for the Lord doesn't just tick the box when things are happy and people are watching. No, in any situation, any circumstance of my life, any circumstance of their lives, as we'll see next week, we rejoice with those who rejoice, we mourn with those who mourn. And then finally, verse 13, contribute to the needs of the saints There's that question of what what does the church family actually need and how can I play my part? And seek to show hospitality. Which is just a great verse, isn't it? As we we begin to be allowed to show hospitality in, in more ways. What a great verse. Seek to show hospitality. Not just to the people I like, not just to the people who kind of brighten up my life, but to the people who I can help as well. Contribute to the needs of the saint. Who might need to see someone? who might need to come round for a cuppa in the garden. Our time is up. My final question really is just, are we up for this? Are we up for it? As a church family, are we up for this? A life of worship across the board, not just a Sunday or a meeting, that that cashes out in, in love for one another, in use of our gifts, in genuine enthusiasm in our corporate life. And if we're not up for it, we probably haven't taken verse 3 on board. We probably haven't yet got a sober assessment of what God has done for us and to us. That we are sinners saved by his lavish, enthusiastic grace. And so therefore can show that grace to one another. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you so much for your gospel that turns us from being curved in on ourselves to instead being being worshippers of you and therefore lovers of one another. Pray so much that would be going on in our hearts. We know that we need the work of your spirit to achieve that and we pray he would be at work in every heart in the building, every heart listening at home. And we pray you would make us more and more the church you would have us be. Pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.